when you think about where to study about God's heroes in Scripture, you would have to go to Hebrews 11 because we've been taught all of our life that it's like a hall of fame. And I, I love reading the stories. I love seeing their faith. I love seeing the activity of God in their life, the great exploits. But notice what it says in Hebrews 11.32 because we want to draw out a name today that's quite interesting. The Bible says, How much more do I need to say? I would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. Great names that are listed there, not perfect people by any means, but people that did great exploits. But when I come across the name Samson, and I remember how he lived, I do find it interesting that he makes it in God's chapter about the Hall of Fame, like the most valuable players, if you will, the the heroes. And so I've been thinking a lot about his life and how when we hear his name, our mind races to the negative. But he wouldn't be listed in the Scripture. His story wouldn't be provided. He wouldn't be referenced in Hebrews 11 if there wasn't a strong message and lesson to learn. So I want to deal with it. I, I want to confront it, and I am so stirred by what we're going to see in the book of Judges about him. It won't be all of his life, but certain aspects. So turn with me. Let's go to the Old Testament, the book of Judges, and we're going to begin in chapter 13. The book of Judges, chapter 13. Do you know, Samson was one who took the Nazarite vow. What was different about him is that he took it for a lifetime. Some would take it for a season. He took it for a lifetime. He would have nothing to do with wine. He would, have, uh, he would never touch that which was dead, and then he wouldn't cut his hair. These ways that he expressed the vow, which really, to put it into a more, I guess, relevant way, is it's the way he was being separate, the way he was setting himself apart and being separate unto God. So in verse 25, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, while he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, I want to stop there and see that the Spirit of the Lord stirred him, and the Spirit of God stirred him when he was between Zorah and Eshtaol. Zorah means hornets. Eshtaol means a place of passionate prayer. The strength of God came when he was between the sting of adversity and a desperate cry to Almighty God. Very important is this place, and I want you to go through this message seeing yourself and seeing us as a church, seeing the Lord's church. I think it's very appropriate to see Samson as an example to us personally as followers of Christ and to see Samson as a type of the church. How often as a church or as a, as a follower of Christ have we been between the place of adversity and crying out to God and it's there that the power of God visited us in great strength. I know of a guy who found a hornet's nest in the woods. He cut it down. He took it home. It was a rather cold time of year. He took it into his home where the house was about 70 degrees. And in the night, these hornets came out, and they began to sting him 
and it was a horrible night. When Samson talks about Zorah, as he talks about these hornets, he is talking about the oppression of the Philistines. That's the enemy of the day at that point in the life of the people. And it was so oppressive, there was such strength in their opposition, that it caused Samson to cry out in passionate prayer. And as he called out in prayer, God stirred him and strengthened him. It's interesting when we get through or go through difficult times, we have a choice. We can become bitter and question God. And we can allow that that place of difficulty to lead to despair. Or we can allow the difficulty to drive us to God in desperate prayer. And what we're seeing here is kind of like a combination that the pain that the people were going through led to prayer, which led to the fresh power of God. Let me give one example of the kind of strength that came to the life of Samson. Shortly after this, an actual lion attacks him. And there is no man in natural strength who is any match for a lion. And yet the Bible says that Samson quickly, swiftly overcame this lion. But it also teaches us that it was the Spirit of God coming on Samson in strength that allowed him to overcome the strength of his enemy, the lion. So when Samson was desperate, needy, when the church in its need, in her desperation, calls out to God. We will be visited by the Holy Spirit with fresh power. And what we learn is that when we're tested, that God's power is greater than the power of our greatest enemy. Can you say amen? See the church in America. See your life as a follower of Christ. Is it a difficult time? I would say we're in a difficult time as a country. Will it cause us to question and and place blame and try to find a culprit? Or will it drive us to calling out from a desperate heart to Almighty God? And can we say once again... Lord, would you strengthen us with might by the Holy Spirit in the inner man? Paul said that we would be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When you study the word might, that's the strength that you see in the life of Samson. And God makes it clear. He wants every one of us to be mighty in him. Then to the pulling down of the stronghold. So do you see that He was stirred, and when he was in this certain place, between Zorah and Eshtaol, between pain and passionate prayer, the Spirit of God strengthened him with such power that he was able to overcome that which no one in their own strength could overcome. What's the most difficult challenge in your life right now? What seems insurmountable, immovable? If we can receive the power of God, then all things are possible with him. 
All right? Let's continue with the story. Go to Judges chapter 15. Let's take a look, starting at verse 18. Now, at this point, Samson has been fighting. He has been battling, and you should read it because it's colorful, it's amazing. It's a great exploit, again, that it can only be done by the supernatural power of God. And so verse 18 says, as a result of all of that, he was now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord. You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi, and Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named that place the spring of the one who cried out, and it is still in Lehi to this day. Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. The context is clear. He's weary. In Judges 13, there's difficulty and pain, but he prays, power comes. In Judges 15, he's tired. He's a weary warrior. He's fatigued. He's diminished. He's depleted. And he prays, and power comes. He's strengthened with might by the Spirit of God in the inner man. We watch the unfolding of his life as these great exploits happen. It's none other than the power of God. So as you, as you see this today, just look at your own story. Maybe you're not at a place of adversity, but you're tired. What will be the response? Will the response be to call out to God, to cry out to God? You see, there, there was a thirst in Samson that drove him to prayer. May our thirst drive us to prayer, and may we see God respond in fresh power. Thirsty. I want us to be thirsty for more of God. Hunger for God. Desire God. For the Lord has not brought us this far to be defeated. Lord, would you, would you quench the thirst? God is looking for a church that thirsts after him. God is looking for followers who are passionate and desperate for him. And there's no doubt, if you, you, you honor God with your life, you're in, you're in definite spiritual battle. And at times, we're like John on the island of Patmos. We're, we're brothers in tribulation. We, we understand that the battle can be very difficult, and we can become weary. But like John, who chose to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day, God revealed to him uh, an incredible picture of Christ. And he was revived and encouraged not to be afraid that God was in control and that Christ held the keys of death and hell. And John was renewed that day. And Samson was renewed there in Judges 15. There was a fresh power. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3 that as we are doing life, there are times we need fresh power. And as we call out to God, we'll be strengthened. And it's an inside job. It's a work of the power of Christ. It's the process work of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. So he strengthened. Now let's go over to Judges 16. And then we're going to put it all together. Judges 16 verse 28. Again Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord remember me again. Oh God please strengthen me. And I like this next part. Just one more time. 
With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Now, at this point, Samson has been blinded. Why? Because remember his vow? His vow that said he would be separate as unto God. And as he lived with a focus on God, he then walked in the supernatural strength of God. Philistines, by the thousands, were no match for him. An actual lion was no match for him because of the supernatural strength of God. However, because he violated that walk of holiness, he lost his strength. Because he violated that vow of holiness, they gouged out his eyes. They attached him to a treadmill, and he walked in circles like an animal. The pagan world saw this man who was once unbeatable, now a mockery of what he used to be. Samson, his name means sunlight. This once shining light in a difficult time was now dark and desperate and depleted. Could we extract from this part of his story a type of the church if we're not careful? Could we find ourselves active, but really our activity is just a church that's going in circles? Could it be the church that's to be set as a city on a hill, a light to shine in the darkness, can lose its light and become dark and desperate, just going in circles? A church that once had great vision and by that vision there was a compelling momentum within the body of Christ and the church was stepping up in the power of God's supernatural strength and the enemy was being thwarted and ground was being taken. Advance was the way you would describe the people of God but now the church is just going in circles, no longer light in the darkness and it has lost its vision. Could Samson be a type? Of the church. However, even in his defeat, he comes to a place of humility and he once again cries out to God God, could you strengthen me just one more time? Feel something stirring in my heart about that passage for us, for us as a church. If we could just say, okay, God, there are some things that we've really missed and messed up. But Lord, we come with humility and repentance. And could you move in power upon us one more time before the rapture of the church? We need you, God, and we have a heart for you. Could you restore us? When Samson cried out in the place of pain in prayer, it led to power. When Samson was weary, he expressed it as thirst, and God quenched the thirst, and he moved on in power. Samson, in his failure, cries out to God, and God responds and moves in power to where his last action in its total was greater than all of the actions of his entire life. Good news today. 
If you find yourself in a painful season, cry out to God, He will strengthen you. If you find yourself weary and tired, cry out to God, He will strengthen you. If you find yourself in that place of failure and almost like a spirit of failure has enveloped you like an old coat, cry out to God. He will give you fresh power and there is still purpose for you. That's good news, church. But let's let's just dredge the channel a little deeper. This lack of power, this loss of strength was tied to a compromise of holiness and this separateness. What does it mean to be separate unto God? What we're learning here is that the harvest of lost souls has got to be tied to the influence of the church, the light of the church penetrating the darkness. And the light, the influence of the church has got to be tied to the godliness of the church, the holiness of the church. So the process work of the Holy Spirit in us is forming the character of Christ in us, which then gives us influence. But when we compromise, then we not only lose our strength, but we also lose that influence. And we remain very active as a church, but lack power. So what does it mean? To be separate unto God. How many of you have been raised in church? It doesn't matter the brand. You were raised in church. Would you keep your hands up for a moment? This, this is a very important thing. Most, most of the room. Okay, you can put your hands down. If you've been in it a long time, holiness has had all kinds of definitions, hasn't it? Holiness one time meant no makeup. It, it meant no, no playing basketball or football. It has had all kind of applications. So what does it mean to be separate unto God? Now, what's the thought? That if we will walk holy before God, we will walk in the power of God. And our pain will be no match for that power. And our adversity will be no match for that power. And our fatigue will be no match for that power. And our failure will be no match for that power. So, so it's very important to walk carefully and respectfully before God in holiness, what does it mean to be separated unto God? I think that great help comes from Romans, and you don't have to turn there. Let me just talk you through it. When you read Romans, you'll go through six chapters before you ever get to one command because Paul is just documenting the great truth of Scripture. It's just the the great doctrine of what Christ has done, who we were, and how by the first Adam we all sinned, and then here comes the second Adam, and through his death and glorious resurrection, he replaced what the first Adam erased. It's just great, great truth. But then he does start making commands, not until the sixth chapter. So let me just set it up for you. And since we die with Christ, Romans 6, 8 says, we know we also live with him. Notice that, that we not only believe on Christ for what Christ did, but somehow supernaturally 
we are in Christ and his work is, we somehow get that accredited to our account. That's how we can have any kind of righteousness or standing of holiness and then the power to practically walk that out in a life that is truly set apart. So he says, we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Now, so you should consider, here's the first command, consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. The first command of Romans is to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. That means that a change has happened. The reason I can consider myself dead to sin is because conversion has occurred. I'm not the person I used to be. Not because of my works, but because of grace. I've been converted. I have been saved. Now, because I can consider myself dead to sin, I also can consider myself alive in Christ. So here's the second command. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. This is interesting. He's saying, do not let sin control your lives. What we're learning in this part is, though we are saved, it is possible to fall into deep sin, maybe even the kind of sin we were saved from. Should we ask David if it's possible, after having walked with God, to fall into deep sin? Should we ask Moses, who knew God, and yet committed murder, if it's possible to do some really dark things even after you know God? Should we ask Samson? All of these people are mentioned in Hebrews 11, and yet we see, they show us, if we aren't careful, we can do some really horrible things. My flesh doesn't care whatsoever that I'm saved, that I feel a definite call to ministry, and that I have a Bible college degree. My flesh doesn't care whatsoever. It is quite possible to end up in some really, really deep, dark places. And so we're learning, what does it mean to be set apart to God? It means to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then it says, don't let Sin, control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Now, watch this. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. So far, it's been don't, don't, don't. Now, watch this. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. Now we get proactive. There are some things we don't do because if we don't have that kind of standard, we'll find that we can fall back. 
there are some things we do. That is to give ourselves completely to God. That's where I come with my heart and I place it before God. And, and the deep truth here is that now I have the potential to desire some things that are actually good for me. The flesh doesn't want anything that's good for me. But once you become alive in Jesus, you have an appetite for prayer. You have an appetite for worship. You have an appetite for more of God. And these things begin to resource you. So you set your heart before God. You say, Lord, have your way. You have all used a mobile phone, and you know what it is to get in an area where you don't have coverage. And if you're on a call, the call is lost. But then you come back into coverage. Maybe you're closer to a tower. So you're now back under the influence. And because you're under the influence of that power, you have the ability to make a connection that before you didn't have. When you get saved, and this may be a good way to test if you're really saved. Because it's quite possible for some people to think they're saved, but they're not saved. You say, how can you judge that? How you know the fruit of their life and maybe the fruit of desire. If there's no desire for God, if there's no appetite for the things of God, then how can we ever say that conversion has happened? Once you get saved, you then have something that comes alive in you that wants some things you've never wanted before. You're still going to battle the flesh, and if you don't deal with it and have that, I will not do this, and I will not go here, and I will not communicate in this way and set myself in this kind of app. There are some things I don't do, but at the same time, it's not just desire control and desire management. It's now elevating desire where I start wanting some things that are actually good for me, like I want to be in the fellowship of God's people. I want to worship. I want to have the scripture in my heart. I, I want to pray and seek the face of God. You see, if, if I am actually physically alive, there's going to be an appetite. If I have no appetite, it's because I'm moving toward death or I'm dead. If I'm spiritually alive, there will be an appetite for the things of God. And as I set standards of things I won't do, the strength to stand is in replenishing my heart, being proactive, just setting my heart before God. And it's captured in a great song that says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. See, don't let sin rule. Don't give yourselves over. Don't give the flesh a foothold. Don't, don't, don't. And then get proactive. And give yourselves to the Lord. Lord, take my moments and my days. And Lord, let them flow in endless praise. In the Civil War, someone would carry the American flag and they would always designate someone in case that flag bearer got killed. Someone would take up the flag because it was the banner. It was the example. Your life is the flag of Christianity in a world that has lost its way. And a life that is set apart unto God will be a life of strength that shines. And what's brilliant about it is that it's not a life exempt from reality. 
It's a life that experiences strength in the raw reality. For the times where you are in difficulty between Zorah and Eshtaol. For the times where you are in fatigue and weariness. And even for the times of failure, you find that you can call out to God. Heard of a person who went through the process to buy a home. These people wanted to sell their home. They went through the process, they bought it. But then once the house was sold, the people who were previous owners wouldn't move out. So here's this guy who has paid for something, and it's his. It's his house, but he can't live in it because these other people hadn't moved out yet. Christ went to the cross, and he died there, and he rose again, and we're purchased by his blood. Paul said, we're not our own. We're the household of faith. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not our own, but God's. Let God live in his house. Let God take up full residence. Be alive in us and let us come alive in holiness and righteousness. Kelly gave a message some, some months ago. The message was a revival of the right. When do we get to a point where we want what is right? When we get this attitude that says, Lord, would you take my life? And would you let it be consecrated? Would you take my moments and my days and let them flow in endless praise? Listen to this verse. Take my will and my will. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thy own. It shall be thy royal throne. Ah, oh, that's the attitude I believe that the Lord is looking for among his people. And to that people, he will show himself strong. And he'll express himself through us in great strength, great influence. We all know that we fight the enemy. We fight the devil. I, I talked about going to Bible college and how the Holy Spirit uh, is worked in me at college but yet the flesh cares not that I went to Bible college I remember in the college classroom we were having a debate about Calvinism and Arminianism where you've got just people who believe in just the sovereignty of God and then those who believe in free will and these two people on either side I mean broke out in an actual physical fight at Bible college in the college classroom talking about doctrine they start fighting <laughs> what a great example Right there in that context, the flesh, the flesh doesn't care that we're, we're, we're discussing doctrine. It will rear up and try to have its way. So we acknowledge that we're in a battle and that our bodies, our flesh does not care that we want to live according to the ways of God. And if we don't get intentional, we won't. And then we could be very active as people who say we're Christian, but 
have no influence and no vision, same can happen to the church. Lord, I want you to move in my life in holiness because I know if you do, you'll move through my life in power. Heroes. Heroes. What this culture needs are heroes of holiness. Let's sing it.